You're about to hear our conversation with Peggy Klinke's sister, Debbie Riddle, a national speaker on stalking prevention, and Dana Flightman, the training and awareness specialist at Spark. To watch the video version of this interview, head over to our YouTube channel. And a content warning, this contains descriptions of stalking, domestic abuse, and murder. January 2024 marks the 20th annual National Stalking Awareness Month, an annual call to action to recognize and respond to the serious crime of stalking. And today we are joined by Debbie Riddle, one of the country's leading speakers on stalking, and Dana Flightman, training and awareness specialist with Spark, the Stalking Prevention Awareness and Resource Center. Thank you both for being with us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, Today, we're going to discuss the case of Debbie's sister, Peggy Klinky, who is the subject of this week's episode. And we're also going to hear some insights from both Debbie and Dana on the landscape of awareness, prevention, and training to help stocking. Yes. So, Debbie, if you wouldn't mind just kind of getting us started and kind of describe who your sister was before she met her stalker. So Peggy is the third in the birth order. I'm the oldest. So there's three girls and then my brother. She, she was like the all-American girl, like blonde hair, blue eyes, cheerleader, smart, bright. Um, you know, I say this all the time, sparkling personality, just, you knew what she, when she was in the room, you know, mm-hmm. cause there was just happiness around her and, you know, her smile and her personality. She was, um, sometimes we would say, and she would say, I'm the meanest person that I know because, you know, she just, she wanted things the way she wanted them, you know? So we were like, oh my God, she's so bossy and whatever. But, you know, she was, she was kind. She was good to those around her. She loved her nieces. I had, um, two young girls at the time and then my sister had a young girl. So she obviously was the fun aunt, mm. the one who would buy them the things that their mothers wouldn't get them. So just really, she was adored by just about anybody that met her. Yeah. And then, so then she was in New Mexico and she was studying, kind of thinking about doing pre-med. And is that where she initially met Patrick? Correct. So she had her undergrad and she decided she wanted to go to med school. She had lived in Italy for a while and then she came back, um, ended up out in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and decided to take some additional classes, study for the MCAT, and then get into med school and continue her education. So yes, in 98, she met Patrick Kennedy on the campus of University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. And what were your kind of your first impressions of Patrick? Um, You know, before I met him, Peggy just said, you know, I met this guy in one of my classes, and he'd asked me out to dinner. So, you know, the very basic dating things, I didn't really hear too much other than that. It wasn't until that December um, when Peggy came home to spend Christmas with our family that she was home at my mother's house and the doorbell rang and I answered the door and Peggy was on her way down the stairs and there's this guy standing on my mother's front porch. Mm. So I have no idea who he is. And I, I turn around and look at my sister and the look on her face was a little shocked. And he was like, hey, I'm, I'm here to surprise you. I'm here mm. to spend the holidays with you. So let's think about a time before Google mm-hmm. and the internet. Like, I think maybe we all had AOL dial yeah. at the time. Mm-hmm. iPhone wasn't around. So my question was, how in God's name did you find out where my mother lived? Were you two 
fly here from New Mexico and show up on our front porch. All the way That's in a really good point because nowadays, unfortunately, it's extremely easy to find people given the technology we have. But yeah, back then, I mean, I think 98, I was a freshman in college. I didn't even have a cell phone. You know, I mean, yeah, like AOL and AIM kind of were the things right then, but it wasn't like it is now. So to find somebody, you would really have to do a lot of digging. Yeah. Yeah. And I had, I mean, regardless of how easy it is to find someone, like, don't do that. You know no. what I mean? So I think yeah. that it's, it's definitely worth noting that, yeah, the technology makes it easier, but whether it was then or now, that behavior of finding someone when they don't want to be found and showing up without their mm -hmm. consent or invitation is, uh, that's not great. No, well, because they were, they had been dating just a few months. So he knew she was going to go visit her family and it, he knew he hadn't been invited. So mm -hmm. to go ahead and step over that norm, that kind of boundary, is that one of the first incidences where you all were like, we don't know about this guy. That for me, that moment in time was, I don't like him. Mm. That is what my gut is telling me immediately. I don't like him. And in those few days that he spent with us, you know, my other sister was like, I don't like this guy. Mm. You know, we couldn't, we couldn't put a finger on it. We're like, okay, you're not an ex murderer. You're not like dressed weird. Like, but it's that gut instinct. Like when your gut tells you something is off, it's off. Yeah. And he really, he really tried to wedge himself into our family and kind of get in everybody's business. And that for me is like overstepping your boundaries. Mm -hmm. Yes, especially at such an early on time in their dating. Was Peggy excited after she got over the initial shock he was there? Or was she also, was it a kind of a, the first red flag that she saw as well? Um, she, no, she wasn't excited. Yeah. I feel like she was just a little bit concerned. Mm -hmm. And I think that concern was, how did you, how did you find my mom? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And did he give any answers? No, he, he, he played it off as it was a complete surprise and he wanted to keep it as a surprise for, you know, keep it as a surprise for her and, you know, introduce himself to the family. Mm. And in Peggy's mind, that's not where their relationship was. Mm -hmm. You know, they met in September and this is December. Yeah. It's only a few months. Yeah. And that's a good point. When really, really trying to push it along. Like mm -hmm. meeting, yeah, because I was going to say, meeting a family member is often something that the person in the relationship gets to say, now I think it's time for right. you to meet my family. And so to have that kind mm -hmm. of, I don't say taken away from you, but it was essentially like, Forced I have decided. You. Yes, mm -hmm. I've decided I will meet yes. them now. Uh, and yes. kind of while he was there, aside from ingratiating himself was he just trying to be extra charming like lay on the compliments or was he more less concerned with you all liking him and just more about being right next to her no he was like my sister had a mother sister had a party um her and her husband you know lived in another house probably like 20 minutes from my mother and you know while he was there he said to my sister he's like well it looks like i picked the wrong sister to sleep with <gasps> And we're like, okay, we've known you two days. And then my brother-in-law said this. He goes, he has Eddie Haskell sent yeah. from Leave it to Beaver. Mm -hmm. Just like super nice, super smothering, overbearing. Like I don't think you know, get, yeah. get out of my yeah. business. And we knew it. Yeah. We knew it wasn't someone who was being genuinely nice or kind or really wanting to help out. Yeah, controlling and also very awkward and uncomfortable to make comments like that. That's, yeah. Yes. Very gross. Well, after that initial, the surprise visit, they when they went back to New Mexico, they continued dating, but and before they broke up and he became her stalker, in the relationship, he became abusive, right? 
Yes. And, you know, in looking back at Peggy's relationship, like I did not see, you know, I have to remember, like people think as abusive, they want that physical, mm-hmm. like, did she have a black eye? Was her lip ever split? Did she have a broken arm? Like I never saw a bruise on her body. I never heard Peggy say he hurt me. But looking at her personality diminish, mm-hmm. I knew there was emotional and psychological abuse. I knew there was conversations where, you know, she would get dressed to go on a job interview and he would say, you know, you look like a slut. No one's going to hire someone as stupid as you. Mm. But then he would apologize mm-hmm. and say, I didn't mean it. And maybe buy her flyers and take her to dinner. But then, you know, it would happen over, over yeah. and over mm-hmm. again. And so, you know, I had these very surfacey conversations with Peggy. My other sister and her were closer. And, you know, my other sister kept saying, like, Peggy was to go to Germany in 99 to meet Patrick's mother. His parents were divorced and his mother lived there. And Marilyn said, I don't want her going because nobody's going to believe me about this guy until Peggy comes home in a body bag. Oh, man. So, you know, my other sister intuitively knew this guy was just bad news. Yeah. And then to think of her going to another country, too, is right. adds a, another element of fear. Oh. I would just... <laughs> obnoxiously interject that no please we want to hear your expertise and thoughts for sure okay well thank you um (laughs) when we think about stalking a lot of times i hear folks say okay it was an abusive relationship and there were some red flags and then the victim left and then when the victim left that abuser began stalking them and that absolutely can happen um but from what Debbie's already shared, that's stalking during the relationship as well. And our data shows that stalking happens during the relationship about half the time when it starts mm. after. It's just folks often don't call it stalking then. They call it emotional abuse or digital abuse. But if you have someone who's being abusive and the, their methods of power and control include things like contacting excessively, showing up when they're not wanted, threatening the person, you know, putting a tracker on the car, spreading rumors about them, all that kind of stuff, some of which was happening to Peggy during the relationship, some of which didn't start till after. Um, But if you have an abuser doing those things, it is intimate partner violence, it is emotional abuse, and it's stalking. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's both. And I think it's really important that we name it as stalking during and after the relationship because on average our intimate partner stalkers tend to be our most dangerous stalkers Mm -hmm. and so when we see stalking within an intimate partner violence relationship whether it's during and or after right we want to kind of have that red flag and that um increased sense of urgency that this particular abuser might be especially dangerous and persistent And I think that it sounds like your family was picking up on that very early on. Mm -hmm. And some of those behaviors that pushing against someone's boundaries, that's absolutely what abusers do. And it can start in small ways where at first it's easy to excuse or maybe it's misunderstanding or, oh, they're just a little nervous. So they, you know, and they'll see how much they get away with and they'll just keep doing it, doing it, doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, my point is just that can also overlap with those stalking behaviors. And it's not always just after the relationship and it's, um, and if they've been doing it during the relationship, they often continue to do it, which sounds like what happened here. Yeah. I was watching the, um, documentary, the 20 minute documentary done on your sister earlier. And one of the detectives in that said, when we become dismissive of the actions that the perpetrator is doing, that's when they begin to escalate because they're kind of testing their boundaries and seeing what they can get away with. And if law enforcement, or um, the victim or others 
kind of like you said, dismissing it and giving excuses. Well, they just see that as another way to to wedge themselves in even further. And his point was, as soon as we see those flags, that's when law enforcement needs to intervene because so sadly, the worst case scenario is when they finally do get involved. And for Peggy's relationship, you know, she did she talk with you all about, you know, I think I'm thinking about ending this. I'm not really sure because, you know, the statistic that we often hear cited is it takes a woman seven attempts to leave an abusive relationship. Had she kind of considered that before she made that ultimate decision? And then when she finally decided to leave, what was kind of the catalyst and how did that go? Well, the, you know, the conversation from us now, this is hindsight. We're like, why don't you just leave? Yeah. You know, in our minds, we thought it's really simple. Just pack up your stuff and go. And Peggy's mind was, I think it was from a safety standpoint. Mm -hmm. Like right now, I don't, I don't want to rock the boat, you know? So she was very um, meticulous and calculated, I think, about how she, she went about planning to escape. Um, At one point, my sister was out in Las Vegas on vacation and, you know, Marilyn, my sister had called Peggy and said, come out here with us, you know, spend, spend some time with us. And Peggy was like, you know, fine, I will. Packed up her bags, got to the airport, and then spent an hour or two throwing up in the bathroom because she was so terrified of what was going to happen to her if she left. And so she never got on the plane and never made it out to Vegas and just went home. But I think... I think the straw that broke the camel's back, honestly, was when Peggy was to come back to Cleveland for a friend's wedding. This was a childhood friend, and Patrick had found out about the wedding. He was not invited to the wedding, so he went and canceled Peggy's flight <sighs> and rebooked flights for him and for her. And Peggy was to be staying with our family, and he was like, nope, you're not staying with your family. We're staying at a hotel across the street. And, you know, we were all at that wedding, and she was absolutely miserable. Mm. And that was in November and she left him in January of 2002. So I think that was, I think that was the final straw for her. And yeah, yeah. the controlling and clearly trying to drive a wedge in between you and her and isolating from the family. And isolating her from others. And mm-hmm. I know I, you talked about kind of the sparkle of her leaving. I feel like in some photographs, you can see from the photographs mm-hmm. you all share with her, fa- the, of her with you, you and her sisters, you know, y'all are all smiling and laughing together early on. And then there are some other photos where she looks a little less, you know, it was that time that she was going through that. So did you see even just external, like, like you said, not signs of abuse in so far that you have a black eye or a busted lip, but just like the light kind of dimming, you know, you just sort of look like you're, you're almost like giving up, but I mean, you're just like having enough of it. Your hope is gone. Your yeah. happiness is like gone. Like he was yeah. snuffing that hope out. Mm-hmm. And you, I mean, she looks sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She looks sick like her. And I was talking about this when I talked with these other survivors, like she was losing hair. Yeah. Her hair was thinning. She was losing weight. She was hypervigilant. She, you know, wanted to be with her family, but she also felt like she was putting her family in danger. Mm. You know, one of, she put her three nieces in the car and took off and then, you know, he killed her and three girls. So, you know, there's a sense of hypervigilance even before she left the relationship. Very careful about, you know, she didn't want to set him off. She didn't want to upset him. But, you know, I have a picture here in my office of our last Christmas together of her and, and my friends. And, she doesn't look like the pictures that you're mm-hmm. talking about. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, you, I'm sorry, did she express that um, 
that was a real fear of hers is that he was going to kill her. Did he, she express that to y'all before she left him? No, she, she never said anything to us that like, Oh my God, I think he's going to kill me. But she had a conversation with Patrick's family, with his brother. And this was after she had left. And she said, you know, do you think that he would ever kill me? Cause he was violent. He had broken into their house at one point and, David, his brother was, had to think about it. And he was like, you know, I don't, I don't think he would kill you. If he was going to kill somebody, he'd probably kill our dad. Oh my gosh. So, so there's that. And then when Peggy broke up with Patrick, Patrick's mother called Peggy and, and she's over in Germany and said, uh, look, Missy, you better get the hell out of the I'll Dodge before I come over there and take care of you myself. <gasps> This is what we're dealing with. So that was going to be my question as well is what was Patrick's, I won't say support network, but it sounds like a negative support network if they're maybe confirming that behavior. It's toxic that, that Dana, is that something that we see with stalkers where they have not just family that's absent, but family that's actively going, Paul, that's just how he is. You know, yeah, he'd probably kill our dad. Adding fuel to the fire. Yeah, Colin, like sounds yeah, like a mom themselves. You know, I don't know. I think that there's such a variety of stalkers and different reasons why they stalk. I think that big picture, it's often culturally acceptable to engage in stalking behavior and that that's a norms change that needs to happen, whether that's coming from the media or the casual use of the word stalking or our friends or, you know, however people talk about stalking as just being kind of annoying. Mm-hmm. Um And we often see those same behaviors presented as really romantic and like, he won't give up. And it's usually our male protagonists who keep trying again and again and again and get the girl. Um, So I think what's tricky with, well, one of the things that's tricky with stalkers is, you know, when I see a text message thread that says something like, I love you, I miss you, I hate you, I'll kill you. I'm like, what were your goals there? What are you going for? You know, and I think it's really hard to know. So there's no consensus on why stalkers stalk in Mm -hmm. the field. Same as like, there's no consensus on why do abusers abuse or why do, to use a little bit older language, like why do batterers batter, right? Mm -hmm. Um, There like can be some relationship with, you know, past violence, witnessing violence might increase your likelihood to experience violence, either as a victim or perpetrator. There are psychological profiles of stalkers that some folks do, but we don't really use those at Spark because we don't want to overput people in a box and say, look, it's this kind of stalker and this is how they'll react. Um, We know that rejection is a common motivator and that often escalates the situation. And so, I mean, personally, I think a lot of stalking is coming out of a sense of entitlement. Right. In the same Mm -hmm. way that we talk about, you know, consent and all of that, you know, consent's not just about your physical body. It's also Mm -hmm. about your time, your boundaries, your Your world, your personality, your sense of individuality. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that sense of entitlement to that uh, is what I see with our with stalking offenders. And I mean, that certainly seems true of Patrick. Um, So I can't speak to like if most stalkers have families that support or don't. Mm -hmm. But I think that. If you're looking for support for stalking behaviors, unfortunately, you can find it, yeah. um, whether that's in a really from your own family who are, oh, you're so great. I can't believe they rejected you and taking that too far. Or if that's kind of a bigger picture social norming of, well, you can't give up. You got to keep trying, mm. you know, and if she's Reddit yeah, right? forums and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that, you know, there's different influencers there, but obviously none of those things are responsible for his behavior. I mean, he, we all hear those messages, some more than others perhaps, and he still chose to engage in the stalking behavior sure. and to not stop despite, 
her many attempts to get away and the many, you know, and the protective order and all of that. And so mm-hmm. that's, that's the decision he made. Sinisterhood, we'll be right back. Had she tried to leave before she officially left? Were there any uh, failed attempts to to leave him? Not to my knowledge. The Vegas trip was the only one that I can remember. And I know that, you know, just while we're talking about, you know, background and support, he had painted his ex-wife as like this crazy woman. And, you know, Peggy, they had a young daughter. I think she was like six or seven at the time. And so Peggy did a lot of mothering when, you know, she was spending time with, with Patrick and not her mom. Peggy got to know the ex-wife. And afterwards we found seven police reports that the ex-wife had written that, you know, criminal property damage, trespassing. Um, I think there was something going on with, you know, their daughter. Mm-hmm. They had to have the guardian ad litem involved, but the last police report she filed, she wrote on the back of it, he's not going to be happy until he kills me or kills our young daughter. Oh. He is stalking me. Wow. And she underlined it. And those police reports sat in a in a file somewhere in Albuquerque Police Department. But that's that was what we were dealing with. We didn't know it at the time. That there was he already had a pattern and practice of this behavior. And then of course frames Absolutely. it when he meets your sister of, Oh, my ex wife is so crazy. And it's like, well, the ten Correct. police reports would say differently. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And but, that's so common. We see that all the time. Mm-hmm. About one in three stalkers have stalked before. Um wow. and so we do see those serial offenders where they move on, but they move on because they find another victim. Yeah. Which, of course, when we're working with a specific victim, that's good news for them, but it's not good news for society or for the next right. person um, right. because they're looking for that next person. And that's definitely what happened here. And it's just really devastating to hear about. And I know because I do training all over the country and we often tell Peggy's story. And that's something that I share with the group. It's not in the video, what you just said, Debbie, because I remember you telling me that, oh, actually he had this history and these reports have been filed. And people get so upset every time they hear that because it's just another opportunity for a potential intervention and opportunity mm-hmm. to recognize the urgency that was not taken. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so frustrating and difficult to see that. We talk a lot about when men say, oh, my ex was so crazy. No, she wasn't. No, what did you do to her? What did you do to her to make? (laughs) Yeah, we we think it's an immediate (laughs) red flag to to speak Mm of um, women that way. And to know that, yeah, and, and also that he was willing to go to the links to kill his own daughter. Once Peggy left, what was the initial reaction from Patrick and how did she finally actually leave him? Well, the day she left, so he was a landscaper. Like, so he had his own business. He just happened to not be home. They were living together. And so she found an apartment, packed up as much as she could in her little car and drove it to this apartment. And when she came back, um, he was home. And so he changed the key code on the garage door. And then he um, like barricaded the front door and then he called police and he was like, someone's here to harm me. I'm so afraid. And I'm afraid they're going to harm my girlfriend and she's trying to leave. And um, I think the police officer I'm seeing kind of smelled a rat, mm. but the mistake that he made is asking Peggy in front of Patrick, Peggy, is there anything else that you want to tell me? You know, and Peggy was like, he looked at me like you say one word and I'll kill mm. you. Wow. 
So she said, no, officer, I just want to get my things and go. So she had gotten whatever else she could out of the house um, and moved. And funny thing was that she called me and she was like, you're never going to guess what he's doing to me. He's, he's stalking me. And t- 10 years prior, I was stalked shortly after college mm-hmm. and ex-boyfriend broke up with, didn't take no for an answer, you know, busted my apartment door down, ran out my answering machine, kind of like surveillance at my work. And I just gotten my first job out of school. And so I ran into a, a classmate of mine who was a law enforcement officer. And I was telling him about this and he was like, you know what he's doing to you? He's stalking you. So I never really, I never even put that together mm-hmm. because back in 1989, stalking was Hollywood. Yeah. Like it was creepy guy in the bushes. So I'm like, I didn't equate that behavior with what, what, what it was. And I was like, okay, I just I want it to stop. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of ruining my life. I'm worried that, you know, I'm going to lose my job. Um, you know, something else is going to happen at the apartment that I'm living at. So it's like get an order of protection. Those papers were filed and, I saw him one day coming down the opposite direction as me. He saw me and turned around and went the other way. So in my mind, when Peggy told me, oh, my God, he's stalking me, I was like, I got you. Mm-hmm. I totally know how this works. So if it gets bad, we'll get an order of protection written. And it, it, it got bad pretty quick. I have to jump in there and say, too, that with Debbie, because, you know, with that idea that well, I didn't think it was stalking because I think of that as a stranger. That's still a pretty prevalent attitude. Most people don't think about stalking all day, every day. Like I have the privilege to. So, um, <laughs> and some victims have the very unfortunate uh, bad luck too. Mm-hmm. And so when most people think stalking, that's what they're thinking. They're thinking about an obsessed fan who's delusional stalking a celebrity because that's a lot of the stalking news that we see. Mm-hmm. Or they might think of kind of that random stranger in the bushes, you know, this like hooded figure who's a mystery. And stranger stalking can happen and public figures can be stalked. Absolutely. But that's by far the minority of cases. Over 80% of the time, victims know offenders, offenders know victims. Mm-hmm. About 30 to 40% of the time that stalker is a current or former intimate partner, like in Peggy's case. Um, and about the same percentage, around 40%, it's an acquaintance. And so... You know, it can also be a family member, a brief encounter, like, oh, I think I met them at a coffee shop once, or I kind of know who they are, but I don't really know them. Um, Or a person of authority, like a law enforcement officer, Mm -hmm. professor, you know, academic advisor, somebody like that. And so certainly, you know, when we at Spark want to think about the diversity of stalking cases, but one of the challenges is that our general public, when they think stalker, they think stranger in the bushes. And our field and the folks who are working to respond to stalking, both on the criminal justice and victim services end, that response really comes out of the domestic violence field. So we have kind of our general public thinking strangers, our um, response housed under domestic violence, and both of those are only part of the picture and they're kind of walking past each other. And so mm-hmm. it's really hard for our victims to connect and find the right services and for our services to necessarily be reaching and fully providing for all of our victims and survivors, right? Regardless of the stalker victim relationship. So it's still definitely a misperception that I think leads to that lack of reporting, lack of calling it stalking. And that's why our, our um, campaign each stalking awareness about this know it, name it, stop it. But that mm-hmm. know it and name it is a big part of it. Just mm-hmm. call it stalking. Don't call it, you know, which isn't to blame anyone because there's very little education on it. But, you know, instead of my ex is being creepy or my neighbor's being weird or my boss is making things awkward, um, to really be able to name, like, I'm being stalked. And mm-hmm. that's a real thing. And I can Google it and things come up. And mm-hmm. 
you know, the resources available. Um, that being said, I know that Peggy did identify it as stalking, probably with your help there, Debbie, with, you know, you're talking about your past experience. And that certainly doesn't solve the whole problem if our responders are not taking that seriously mm-hmm. and, right. you know, doing the right thing from that point forward. Well, and so the the behaviors that Patrick engaged in after they broke up, because, you know, I, I read a statistic that was something and Dana, correct me if I'm wrong, like a, less than a third of all stalking victims report their victimization because you tend to minimize it. When I worked with older adults who were victimized, they would tell me textbook incidents of them being abused. And I'd be like, OK, since you're suffering from elder abuse, they're like, well, I'm not being abused. You know, oftentimes we don't we're we don't want to victimize ourselves or be like, I don't want to play the victim. It's like, no, it's important to step into that and go, I am being victimized. What can I do? now in response but while a third do not uh, or less than a third report it peggy did report it and what behaviors occurred before she took up the phone and reported it to the police and then sort of where where did she end up with being able to get an order of protection so it was it was several months and i really think you endure for as long as you can until you can't anymore and in her case it, the easiest way to get a hold of her or to get to her was the cell phone so it was the texting and the calling, and it was very much like their relationship. Like, I love you. You know, come back to me. Please pick up your phone. Listen, you fucking bitch. If you don't mm-hmm. pick up the phone, I'm going to find you and kill you. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say that. You know, so it was these ongoing messages, like day in, day out, text messaging. Um, he knew where she worked. So we'd kind of, kind of just come and hang out in the parking lot. And he knew where she went to the gym and he would hang out in the parking lot there and just kind of watch her, you know, it's just that it's that inducing fear. Mm-hmm. That's what all of this is like, about. I see you to induce fear into that victim. Yeah. And, you know, Peggy had started dating someone else. And she told Mark, she was very honest with him and said, Look, I have a stalker, he's relentless. And Mark was like, I'm not, you know, I'm not worried about it. And so then he found out who Mark was and started stalking Mark started calling him, you know, harassing him on his work phone. Um, Finally, it was um, a flyer, an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper that had Peggy's picture on it that she had left behind. And he wrote on there, I'm a bitch, I'm a whore, I'm a slut. Um, I've slept with many. Um, I've had two abortions in counting. Um, If you'd like to sleep with me, give me a call and put Peggy's cell phone number on it. And with that, he spread them throughout the city of Albuquerque, specifically in places where he knew Peggy would probably come across one. And one was her yoga studio. And she walked in one morning and one of the instructors said, you know, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but this was taped to our front door. So that was what perpetuated Peggy to finally go to police because like many stalking victims, they feel like they don't have any proof Mm -hmm. or it's so minimal because it's not criminal behavior. Mm -hmm. You know, to text someone is not criminal to like, you know, hang up a piece of paper. It's not criminal. But Peggy was like, look, I have text messages. I have phone calls. He's following me. He's watching me. And now I need a flyer. So I'm going to police. So she took all of that to the police and it was the line that she'd gotten, get, has gotten several times during her case was come back to us when something happens as mm. if something hadn't already happened many, and many she's times trying to tell them something is yeah. happening. Like I have been stalked relentlessly for four months by this man. And you know, that's kind of, that's kind of where they left it until we got to June. And my brother was married in Florida. Patrick knew about the wedding mm-hmm. You know, like I said, he had been around our family. He knew where we all lived. He had everybody's phone number. Um, 
he called my brother and was like, Hey, I'm sorry, you know, things between your sister and I didn't work out. I really loved her. And I really wanted to be a part of your special day, but it didn't work out that way. And I just want you to know, I, you know, you have my best wishes. And while we were at the wedding, he flew from Albuquerque to Ohio, went to my mother's house, spray painted PK is a whore on my mother's garage door. Um, We didn't find out about it, but my mother did. Um, The neighbors called my mother, you know, while we were all in Florida. So my mother filed a police report in Ohio, but then had it sent out to New Mexico where we're trying to build the stocking case. And then two days, two or three days later, we're all out to dinner in Florida and Mark, you know, we leave the restaurant, Mark picks up his phone and he's got like, seven or eight missed calls. It's Albuquerque fire, Albuquerque police, his neighbor, his mother, someone had opened up a gas line and set the back of his house on fire. Oh my gosh. Wow. And Peggy knew instantly it was Patrick. And, you know, Mark and Peggy went back to Albuquerque and Peggy was trying to tell law enforcement, (laughs) I know you're investigating an arson case, but there's arson because he's stalking Mm -hmm. This is, this is part of what's happening in my world. And they kept saying, well, ma'am, let us do our job. Let us investigate this arson case. And Peggy went even as far as looking at some of the footprints around the back of Mark's house saying, look, I bought him these boots for Christmas wow. you know, a couple years ago. And he walks, you know, a this certain way. way with his right foot out or whatever. Mm-hmm. And could you please go to his house, like get a search warrant and look for these boots. Well, ma'am, we're investigating an arson. Like this isn't, you know, so again, she's continuously being dismissed by the police. Yeah. And this drives me to madness because we hear it all the time. Victims Mm -hmm. saying, well, they said they couldn't do anything until someone tried to hurt me, which is really messed up on a variety of levels. But even if you look just at a very strict criminal justice lens on that, it's not accurate. There are Mm -hmm. plenty of crimes that are nonviolent crimes and every Mm -hmm. criminal code is different in every jurisdiction, but is it trespassing, tampering Mm -hmm. with a motor vehicle, eavesdropping is a crime or like I do a lot of trainings in the state of Virginia, um, causing telephone to ring. I'm sorry, causing telephone or pager to ring with intent to annoy. That is a crime in the state of Virginia, right? Um, And it could also be things like vandalism, uh, other kinds of property damage, voyeurism, non-consensual image distribution. Mm. You know, many stalkers are engaging in these behaviors as part of what we call their course of conduct, right? Their pattern of behavior. Um, Behaviorally, we see stalking as two or more behaviors. Obviously, Peggy experienced way more than that. A couple stages, three or more, but, you know, it's multiple behaviors. So, what when we train law enforcement, we always say, if you can't charge stalking, charge something. Yeah. Right. And help build that course of conduct. Because if on day one you have trespassing and on day two you have, I don't know, some kind of vandalism, I know I'm not your judge, but according to me, Judge Dana, you have a stalking case. You have two yeah. or more behaviors that would cause fear. But if we didn't do anything with that trespassing, now we don't have a stalking case because we're starting with one instead of two. Um, and it also kind of reshapes how you look at sometimes someone who has a criminal record with kind of misdemeanor offenses that don't seem violent on their face. If you're looking at like, oh, you know, disturbance of the peace and trespassing and, you know, those could be really mi- like fairly mild things or they could be what Patrick's doing. Right. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it kind of reshapes how you look at that person's history as well, because if those are targeting the same person, um, that person's a stalker and stalkers yeah. are dangerous. 
right? And so it's something to consider. But we also tell police, hey, if you don't think a stalking charge is strategic or if you, because sometimes they can't do anything that moment, right? Like we have victims find an air tag on their vehicle and they don't know who put it there and mm-hmm. they don't have any guesses. There's no suspect. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, they can't do anything with there's no suspect, right? In terms of the criminal justice side, but it's really different to say, hey, you were right to come to me. I'm so sorry this happened. I get why you're scared. Let's connect you with victim services. You should document everything. Here's the best way to do that. Do you feel safe? Let's make some safety planning. And if anything else comes up, like, here's my number, please call me. That feels a lot better than there's nothing I can do. Come back when they try right. to hurt you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry, it's also that. so minimizing that what's your experience isn't uh, a crime. I mean, to threaten someone you fucking bitch, I'm going to kill you or to spray paint on your mother's garage door. PK as a heart. I mean, all these are forms of abuse. Mm-hmm. They might not have physically impacted her, but emotionally into the whole family as well. So I think it, like you said, Dana, like reshaping what is abuse. And like, there are tons of crimes that um, you don't have to ever physically touch a person to be in, in prison for. I mean, right. you, you can go to prison for a bag of marijuana, but, you know, yeah. threatening someone for months on end in various serious ways, mm-hmm. it's like, well, that's just boys being boys kind of mentality. With a prior record of the, that same behavior, too, is with what Correct. stands out yeah. as egregious to me, that you go in and say, hey, my boyfriend's house has been burned down by this person who distributed 300 flyers about me and also go, just search his name in the system. Like, and also what? has record of his ex-wife, ex-wife says he's yeah. trying to kill him and his daughter. That's what I'm so, saying. Go I mean, ser- search his name in the system. a mile long. Why was there ever well, any explanation from Albuquerque PD of why they weren't uh, more concerned about him given his past behavior and that he was literally doing the same thing again? No, they never said anything about his past behavior. We didn't find it out wow. until after the fact. And somebody had mentioned, you know, Peggy's video earlier and, and Mark Wynn is on there. He's retired law enforcement. He's who I, he's my guardian Mm -hmm. angel. He's a rock star when it comes to stalking. But, you know, he says very clearly in that video, it's not like we don't know who this is Mm -hmm. with, you know, some own unknown location with some unknown person. We know who it is. Mm -hmm. We know who they're after. And most of the time we know where we can find them. Mm -hmm. Easily. He's like, it's all, it's all right out yes. there. It's not a mystery. He's the one I believe that said, when we start to minimize is when they maximize, yes. which mm-hmm. really stood out yes. to me as very but poignant. Peggy mm-hmm. had de- sort of collected everything in like a huge binder. You said it was like two or 300 page binder. And finally, Gosh. when she took that to law enforcement, what was kind of the impetus that they finally granted the order of protection for her? So it was... It was after the arson when she was not getting any headway that she was like, forget this, I'm filing for stalking charges and I'm filing for an order of protection. So she had an attorney. She was working with her. I don't think she was a very good attorney. Um, she wasn't, Peggy was not getting the help and the support she needed. Um, but when she went in to file for the order of protection, Patrick went in and filed an order of protection against her. Mm. And so basically told the judge, she's crazy. She's a drug addict. Um, I'm in fear for my life because of her and her behavior. You know, she's, she's putting my young daughter in danger. And the judge was like, look, had enough. You stay away from her. You stay away from him. 
And when they walked out of court, Patrick said to her, I told you not to fuck with me. Oh. And it's, and it's because he did it before. Yeah. It's because he had those seven police reports already filed against him. And that's, he knew exactly what he was yeah. doing. And what a threatening message too, implying now I'm really going to ramp it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sinisterhood will be right back. And, and we see the stalking behavior. If you look at stalking cases, and Dana can talk about this, we see the behavior escalate over time. Peggy's not engaging. Peggy's not giving him anything. He's getting angry. Mm. So he just continues to turn up the heat at every corner so he can get some kind of reaction from her. Yeah, and I think we often see so much victim blaming in these cases that I think big picture in the world, while we still certainly have a lot of space to go around victim blaming for intimate partner and sexual violence, I, at least in my little bubble, sexual violence victim blaming is called out a little bit more. Mm-hmm. For stalking, it's a lot of the same messages. It's But, you know, somehow we accept it or people aren't as thinking as critically about them. And it's that like, well, why did you keep talking to him? Why didn't you stop? You know, why mm-hmm. didn't you block them on social? Why didn't you walk away? And all of those are not guarantees this person will stop stalking you. Mm-hmm. Um, and Peggy's case showed that because she did everything right, right? She did everything by the book in terms of what those victims are often told. Mm-hmm. And it still wasn't enough. And that's because just like Debbie said, our offenders are trying to get a reaction from their victims. And mm-hmm. so it's really about asking the victim how they think the offender will respond. Do you think if you, you know, block them on social media, will they get the message or will they be like, okay, I've gone too far. I don't want to keep doing this. Or will they find another way and escalate their behavior? Mm -hmm. Because we see that, that when victims create distance, many offenders escalate the behavior. And Mm -hmm. if you think about it, logically it makes sense, right? I mean, the, Mm -hmm. it doesn't make sense. Don't do it. But but um, you know, the average duration of a stalking case, not the high end, the average duration is two years. Oh, wow. 10% of cases last five years or more. So you know, a stalking case can last from one afternoon to a whole lifetime. There's a huge variety there. But for a lot of stalkers, they have time to change their behaviors. And mm-hmm. so when you look at these dynamic cases and these persistent offenders, if I'm, you know, calling you on your phone and eventually you're like, I'm so over Dana stalking me, I'm going to change my phone number. So I call and get that this number's no longer in service. Am I the stalker going to be like, oh, I guess I'll stop stalking mm-hmm. today and become exactly. a productive member of society? Mm-hmm. No, I think you double down boundary. and now it's a mission to find the new number to show I'm still exactly. in control. Mm-hmm. Totally. And, and what was interesting, What? go ahead, Denny, you can go ahead and finish. Oh, no, I was just going to say from a criminal justice perspective, we want to know that because it show, it's like evidence of intent, right? Mm-hmm. It shows their resistance and his persistence. So that's helpful to know. But did that make you safer? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. Um, but that's often the advice given, and it's given in a lot of different forms. Change your number, change your roots, you know, block them. And I'm not saying never do those things. It creates a clean line, and that's helpful to see when it's crossed from a criminal justice perspective. But it doesn't always benefit the victim in the safety perspective. And right. often that best puts the onus on the not. victim to protect yeah. themselves rather than law enforcement going after the perpetrator. It's like, well, it's your kind of responsibility to keep yourself safe because we can't do anything. Well, you and know? even right. with the protective order, it's only as good as the enforcement, right? Yeah. And you have to call yes. it in and be confident that there'll be a response right away in that 
then there'll be charges filed. Because one thing I didn't understand is like, oh, the protective orders, that's generally civil. When it's violated, that becomes the crime. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, and for me, I'm like, why are we charging stalking with every violation of protection order? Obviously, disturbing, like scary behaviors led up to this moment, and now they're continuing to do it. So that's a pattern of behavior. It, it's really puzzling to see <laughs> it, not, it not be treated that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did he violate the order of protection on a regular basis? Well, so here's the interesting thing. She got that attorney. She filed for the order of protection. And while they were waiting for a court date, the court date was like, we're going to move it. This was in August of 2002. So the court date was like pushed into September, then October, then to January. So here is this victim that basically is a sitting duck. Yeah. Because now he... He can, I mean, I don't think he doesn't care. He does not care that he is going to break an order of protection. And Peggy and Mark knew that. And so Peggy moved from Albuquerque out to Turlock, California. And the plan was stay out there until the trial happens. He'll get locked up and you'll be able to come back and, you know, live in Albuquerque. So he, he couldn't find her, mm-hmm. but he worked many avenues. He worked with a private investigator never paid the private investigator, but was trying to figure out exactly where Peggy was living. So the private investigator gave him an area because there was no money exchange. Mm. So he wouldn't give the exact location where he thought Peggy was. Well, then Patrick posed as a police officer and found out um, who Peggy's moving company was (sighs) and said, you know, I'm officer Galuli and I've, you know, uncovered some of recovered some of uh, Miss Clinky's stolen goods. Can you give me her address? And the woman at the desk was like, I can't give you that information, officer. Like, if you bring her things in here, like, thank God for that. Yes. Yes. On the phone. Um, you know, if you bring her things in here, we'll get them to her. And he was like, you know what? Um, never mind. So this girl called Peggy because what officer would basically right. say, well, forget it. I'm going to keep this girl's yeah. goods. And Peggy said to her, it's I don't have nothing was stolen. Mm. Nothing was recovered. The guy's name is Patrick Kennedy. He's stalking me. So he's working all these avenues. He finds some coworkers and um, one of Peggy's coworkers picked up the phone and I, I can't remember who he said he was. And the girl was like, I've never heard that name before. I have no idea hmm. who you're talking about, but hung up the phone and called Peggy. Yeah. And Peggy's like, that's, that's my stalker. So though he had several, several months um, to harass her and he couldn't get he couldn't figure out where she was at. So, you know, he's going to, now he's going to harass my mother. Mm. So he took all the photos that Peggy had left behind. He put them in a Ziploc bag, poured water in the bag, sealed that up and mailed it to my mom. Again, <sighs> not criminal behavior. Mm-mm. You can mail somebody a Ziploc bag of photos and nothing dangerous. Mm-hmm. In it. But two things, um, the return address was Mark, which Mark didn't have those photos. So we're like, okay, we know that he didn't send it. But the postmark was San Jose, California. Mm, which is near Turlock. Now you know he's in California. And I was like, he's getting closer yeah. to finding her. So we did. We filed a police report, took a picture of the box, took a picture of the damaged photos, um, sent that out to uh, New Mexico. This was in, this was, I think, in November. And then at Thanksgiving, like I had gone home with my girls. We always went back. I only lived like an hour and a half. I was living in Cleveland at the time. So about an hour and a half from my mother and went home for Thanksgiving. And about 10 o'clock at night, the phone rings and I answer it. And it's Patrick. And he's like, I know where she's at. And in 10 minutes, she'll be dead. 
So my my girls are already in bed and I'm thinking he's in the backyard, which was woods and he's going to open fire and probably kill my mother and Mm -hmm. I who are standing in the kitchen. Or he knows that Peggy flew into Albuquerque for the weekend to spend time with Mark. So I pretend like I don't know who it is. I don't engage. I act like I I was like, hello, hello, Mm. hang up the phone. I immediately call Albuquerque police and dispatch somebody to Mark's Mm -hmm. house. And I was, I begged them do not hang up on me. I need to stay on the line because I need to know that my sister's safe. Mm -hmm. So the police get there and Peggy thinks something is wrong with her mom. Mm -hmm. She, I mean, we had thought if he couldn't find Peggy, maybe he was going to come and kill my mother. Mm -hmm. So I had to tell her we're fine. I'm glad you're fine. But Patrick called and said he was, he knew where you were at and he was going to kill you. And so Peggy was like, file a police report, call the district attorney. Mm -hmm. I was like, no problem. So we file a police report of the death threat phone call in Ohio. We send that out to um, New Mexico. I call the district attorney. I tell him we just received a death threat phone call at 10 o'clock at night. It's Patrick Kennedy. And Peggy had told me he's not going to, he's not going to pick up. So Peggy got a hold of him the next day. And after he had already received my message and he heard Peggy's voice and immediately starts laughing and goes, Oh my God, you're still alive. (gasps) The district attorney said, Peggy said to him, is it going to take a bullet to my head for you to understand how serious this is? The cops said that the district attorney said that district, the district attorney told her that. Absolutely unprofessional and callous. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Egregious. the license immediately. That's, and then, I mean, to, when that's what you're faced with, I imagine you feel completely helpless because who are you supposed to go to if not the police? And when they don't care, then what do you do? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you have no support system and no one to guide you. Mm. No. Through, through any of this. And he's, like I said, he can't find Peggy, so he's terrorizing the rest yeah. of our family. What was her emotional state like during this time? It was it was awful. So that was that incident was in November. In December, she came home for Christmas. That's the photo I was talking about earlier. I mean, she looked unwell. Mm-hmm. Um, she was just, I mean, a hot mess. Yeah, is all I can describe. She had, like I said, her hair was falling out. She was, I mean, and she was already a pretty thin girl, but she was pretty buff. I mean, she taught yoga, lifted weights. She was very mm-hmm. fit. Didn't look like that mm-hmm. anymore. I mean, just sad, just sad, like a very sad, hopeless person. And I, I know she wanted to be with us, but like I said before, she felt like she was putting our family in danger, mm-hmm. you know, by being with us because wherever she was, and if Patrick would have found her, he might've killed anybody yeah. that was in the vicinity. So as much as she wanted to be with our family, she was very nervous. So when she left my house in Cleveland, this was like at the end of December, like I remember it was cold standing on my front porch, hugging her. She's crying. I go, look, you got, you got two weeks, two, three weeks, just get back to California, get back to work, nose to the grindstone. And this trial is going to happen and it's going to be all good. He's going to get, he's going to get his ass thrown in jail you're going to be able to pack up your stuff in California and come back to Albuquerque. It will be fine. Mm-hmm. And that was the last time I was able to talk to her. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, she goes back to California and you think, you know, when someone is being stalked, she is the primary target, but the uh, 
a behavior an impact extends out to family friends work associates i mean Pets. it's everybody has to be yeah everybody has to be on alert and so for when we say that you know the system absolutely let her down but it is in so doing creating further victims you have to worry debbie about you, the safety of you and your girls the safety of your mom mark his family his house getting burned down so when peggy has this this trial date in sight she goes back to California, and by now, Patrick has narrowed down where she's living through use of the private investigator, which I have a question about as well. Was the private investigator not aware about the pending case, regardless of an exchange no. of money? Like, he's a private investigator. He did not investigate his client. He did not investigate. He did not find out that this man had a order of protection out on him. Mm. Um, you know, the airlines, he traveled from New Mexico out to California, he should have, I mean, having an order of protection on him, he should have not been permitted to carry firearms. He checked mm-hmm. two firearms, right, mm-hmm. on the way there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. He had a rifle, like a sniper rifle and a handgun. And, you know, rope and tape and all sorts of other good stuff with him. So he he had been casing Peggy's neighborhood. So he'd flown out to San Jose. He was um, driving up through these little towns like Modesto, Sherlock. And at the time, that's when Lacey Peterson mm. had gone missing. Mm-hmm. And so that was all over the news that there was this missing girl in California. And truth be told, I kept thinking, he's going to make it look like she's another victim wow. and wash his hands of it and go home and take a shower and go to bed. So he was out there, um, Casey neighborhood. He actually came across a law enforcement officer, a woman, and you know, he had Peggy's picture he was saying he was a private investigator. He had business cards made and he said he was looking for this woman. He just had to get a check from her. And the woman was like, no, I've never seen her. So he's you know, still working the neighborhood and he runs into a delivery driver. And Peggy was working in pharmaceutical sales. So basically he had the jackpot with this guy and had Peggy's picture and said, look, you know, I'm looking for this girl. I just, I got to find her. I got to pick up this check. And the guy was like, not really supposed to give out, you know, information that's confidential. And Patrick was good. He was like, look, man, I just, if you can just tell me where she lives, I just have to scoot over there and, and pick up this check and gave him, the, gave him the business card that he was carrying. And so at the end of the day, the driver caved mm. and gave um, him Peggy's full address. Oh my God. So yeah. Patrick was able to, this was on um, Saturday, mm-hmm. January 18th. This is about a week before the trial, several days. And it's about nine o'clock in the morning, eight o'clock in the morning. And Peggy is getting some laundry together. And her neighbor, Rachel, Peggy was living in the condo at the time. And her neighbor, Rachel, was coming over and they were going to go for coffee. And so Peggy was gathering her laundry, set it on the kitchen counter and walked into her garage. So she had a door that went into her garage and she had a door that went out the front. And as she walked into the garage, Patrick was hiding in the garage. Oh my God. And um, came in and beat her over the back of the head with that handgun, mm. um, you know, threw her up against the wall. She slid to the floor. He um, flipped her over. He tied her hands behind, behind her back with tape and then put tape over her mouth. And I don't know if his intention was to kill her there, but basically was not going to let her scream and not let anybody hear her scream. But like I said, Peggy, small but mighty, somehow, someway was able to get out of that mess and pull the tape off her hands, pull the tape off her mouth. Now, her neighbor, Rachel, is standing at the front door thinking 
she's going for coffee with Peggy. Mm -hmm. So imagine the horror when her neighbor rings the doorbell and Peggy runs out that front door with a gash in her head and there is just blood everywhere. And Peggy's screaming, my stalker's here. He found me. He's going to kill me. And so she grabs Rachel and Peggy and Rachel run into Rachel's condo, lock the door. They go upstairs, kind of barricade themselves in the bedroom. And Peggy's able to make a 911 call. And while she's on the phone with dispatch, you can hear the, the glass break. Patrick breaks in to Rachel's condo and he comes up the stairs and he finds Peggy in there, but Rachel is hiding like in the back of the closet. So he doesn't, he has no idea that this woman is in the room with them. Mm-hmm. And so he's got, you know, Peggy on the ground. He's got a gun to the back of her head. Um, and the SWAT team arrives and Peggy is telling the officer, do not come in here. If you open that door, he is going to kill me. And the officer says, you know, well, first he's trying to talk to Patrick because he's trying to get Patrick to engage with him and get his mind off of Mm -hmm. Peggy. Patrick's not answering any of the questions. Mm -mm. And so Peggy, in a very, very calm manner, um, you know, tells the police officer, look, I need you to call my mother in Ohio and tell her I love her. Mm. Um, I need you to tell my young niece she's been sick all winter. Tell her. She'll have a guardian angel watching over her in heaven. And then I need you to call my sister who's pregnant and tell her to name her baby after me. Mm -hmm. And shortly after those messages were delivered, um, Patrick saw Rachel in the back of the closet and for a split second put that gun down and told her to get the hell out of the room. Mm -hmm. And so when Rachel ran out and they opened up the door, Patrick picked that gun up and tried to shoot the officer that was standing outside the door. But when they shut that door... He shot Peggy in the back of the head, then he shot himself. Mm. And so the SWAT team went in immediately, you know, got Peggy out on the front lawn, but she, I mean, she died minutes later. And then Patrick was dead at the scene. Mm-hmm. So this, this is all transpiring on this Saturday afternoon. And it was funny because I tried to call Peggy that morning and she didn't pick up, which I mean, she's busy. I know she was out and about. My mother was like, Oh yeah, I tried to call Peggy this morning. And I was like, I don't. I don't know what she was doing this morning. And I just so happened to be in town with my girls because we were getting ready to celebrate my niece's sixth birthday. So, you know, all day Saturday goes by and Saturday night, it was, I just put my girls to bed and the doorbell rings, which is kind of an odd thing in my mother's neighborhood because people come in and out of the house. And I can remember thinking, I'm not, I'm not going to like just walk down the hallway because I was still fearing that Mm -hmm. Sunday Patrick was going to show up with that gun Mm -hmm. and kill my mother. Mm -hmm. So as I round that corner, I see two uniform Mm -hmm. officers standing on my mother's front porch. And I remember it like it was yesterday. I walked in that hallway. I opened up the door and said, did Patrick Kennedy kill my sister? Mm -hmm. I mean, and that's, that's how we found out. Yeah. I'm, I'm so, so sorry. So sorry. I've been, we've been, you know, researching the case, studying it, going over it and have, be, I was just earlier today sobbing, you know, thinking about this case and the strength that you have to to tell her story, not just here with us, but on the scale and the amount of times that you've done it. Thank you. Because even I'm sure mm-hmm. no matter how many times you, you relive it and say it, it, it never gets easier. But the moment that you hear that, I know the the devastation, but but in the interview, you kind of said you were 
early on going, if it, if the tables were turned, Peggy would be on the phone at my funeral. Like what, what oh. was the like feeling? Were you kind of pre grieving because you were all worried that this might happen and, and you were just sort of spurred to action? So that was said after, yeah. after she yeah. was killed thinking, cause she, I mean, she was a badass. Yeah. So she, you know, would have taken on the world uh, for any of her family, but grief is a really weird place to be because I felt like I was standing at a fork in a road where I could just go down this really, really dark, bad path. Now, mind you, at the time I was pregnant. So like, mm. I can't drink myself silly. Mm. I can't medicate myself any other ways. So hormones are all over the things. place anyways. It sucks. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I can remember like I was up in my mother's room and, um, this one, she had AOL and I was like researching, stalking and looking up things. And like, I just, I kept wondering, like, how, how did somebody who, like Dana said, she did everything right. She yeah. was stalked relentlessly under the watchful eye of our criminal justice system. I put my trust in the criminal justice system. Peggy put her trust in it. When that arson happened, literally was like, yes, arson. That's a crime. Mm-hmm. He's going to go to jail. This is bad. And and nothing happened. And yet, like the puppy that continuously gets kicked, I was like, okay, but next time, yeah. next time they'll do something about this. So during that week when we were preparing for Peggy's funeral and people were coming over and, you know, I was putting kind of pieces of the story together because we had reached out to Rachel and I talked to her for a little bit. And, um, you know, I started telling people what had happened and how long it had been going on for. And I, you know, I had a sick feeling it was going to end up like this, but I never wanted it to end like this. And I thought, I just, we have to do something better. We, and I thought, you know, we could do something with this story. But at that moment in time, I didn't know what that looked like mm-hmm. until a couple weeks after Peggy was killed. Um, my oldest was in kindergarten. My youngest was like two, who was like obsessed with Nickelodeon. And she kind of scooted out of the room. And I was like, oh, thank God. Like, I need... I need to see to somebody over the age of 20 right now. And um, they cannot be animated. So I put on the Today Show and it's right on the screen. It said Tracy Baum, director of Stocking Resource Center. And I was like, what, what is that? Yeah. You know, so went to my computer, found out who she was. I sent her a really long email. She called me the next day. We had a long conversation um, about what I wanted to do. And my first my first thought was, how do we get every law enforcement officer trained right. in crime stalking? Is there funding to have, you know, every unit have a dedicated officer for that? Mm-hmm. She was like, well, let me, let me think on that. And she called me back two days later and said, Hey, you know, Aaron Brockovich um, is starting a series called Ordinary Women, Extraordinary Lives. Would you be willing to tell them Peggy's story? And I was like, absolutely. Because at this point, telling Peggy's story as horrible as it is was somehow therapeutic for Mm. me. Um, So I had told the people at Lifetime and that just put the wheels in motion for, they were so affected by Peggy's story that they wanted to do something bigger. So it was um, the National Center for Victims of Crime and then the Stalking Resource Center, which is now Spark, sat under NCVC. Mm. And then they pulled in Mark Wynn, um, Heather Wilson, who was in the House of Representatives in New Mexico mm-hmm. at the time. And talking with her in D.C. that summer was very eye-opening for me because she said, you know, the laws are all there. Mm. I think what we're missing is education. Mm. 
And that's when the light went off thinking, this is where Peggy's story is going to live. I didn't say like, I want to do a training video for law enforcement with this. It just, it sort of just blossomed out of that. But that's, that's her legacy. And I was just in DC with four survivors thinking, this is Peggy's legacy at work. These women are alive because of her. Mm -hmm. They are. They really are. Sinisterhood, we'll be right back. Your work's done so much. What tips do you have for those who have lost loved ones or have been victimized themselves to turn grief into action? I don't know, Dana, can you answer that? I mean, everybody, what works for me is not going to work for somebody else. I mean, we all need to figure out and travel that path of grief. Mm -hmm. So I can't say to everybody, like, when you lose this person, then you do this, and then great things happen. That's not the way this works. Um, Grief is not a one size fits all. But I've met, I've met an awful lot of people in my speaking that, you know, say, you know, oh, I had a son that I lost to uh, Downs. And I think telling his story would be good for Mm -hmm. me. We always say that there's power in sharing. Yeah, I really can't overstate how powerful and what an impact Debbie has made in this space. Incredible. Um, I mean, she's an inspiration to me personally, to our entire team at Spark, and to the other victims and survivors who are coming forward and telling their story because it's so hard, and it's not for everyone. Mm -hmm. Like Debbie's saying, it's not like well, you know, survivors don't owe us their stories, Mm -hmm. and the family members who witness this and you know, they don't, Debbie doesn't owe us any of this. Right. Um, And so it's just about what makes that person helps them heal and is powerful. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I would not tell anyone that this is something they need to do or must do. Mm -hmm. Um, But I can just tell you, I mean, like personally, I saw that video before I was working on stalking. I remember going to a conference. There's very little training on stalking uh, generally. I mean, you know, I do trainings, all across the country for law enforcement, victim services, campus professionals. And I usually start by asking the question, is this the first time you've had the opportunity to attend a training specifically on the topic of stalking? And usually it's half of the whole room raising their hands, including really professionals doing great work in our field. And that's not a reflection of anyone as an individual, but is a reflection that's really, really under-trained and under-resourced. And when you think about it, you know, there's no national stalking hotline, there's no stalking crisis center. So it really falls to folks who are often primarily focused on intimate partner and sexual violence, which are, those are big victimizations with plenty of work to do um, to kind of add stalking on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at Spark, I'm always like, I'm not saying that's fair or easy, but I am saying it's important. And so, mm-hmm. you know, our job is to make that as easy as possible for folks Um and having, you know, we can come in with the data and talk about it. And we have a ton of tools on our website and all of that. But when I think about stalking and what's missing from the response, it often boils down, at least to me, to a lack of a sense of urgency. 
Mm. Um, yeah. That this Come back is, when something happened. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think we see that yes. across the board, the lack of urgency from law enforcement, sometimes from victim services as well, from those informal supports, like friends and family who we know our victims tell first, you know, hearing, is it that big a deal? You know, it'll probably stop if you just ignore it. You're feeding the fire by responding to it. You know, are you sure they meant it that way? Um, all the way up to, well, we deal with violent crimes and that's not a violent crime, right? So this Mm. minimization and lack of urgency really, really plagues the response to this at many levels. And at this point, what we say at Spark is you have to luck into a good response. Mm -hmm. And some people do. Like we were, like Debbie said, we were in DC this week with all these incredible survivors and some of them did have a good response from law enforcement. And they say, I'm here because this officer knew exactly what was happening. The first time I report it, they said, this is stalking. We need to get that. Or we take this really seriously. And they did. So it's not that it's not possible or that no one's doing good work on this. It is possible and they are, but in some ways, so it's, it's hopeful and it's frustrating because it's almost mm-hmm. sadder knowing, Oh, it could be yeah. better. And yeah. sometimes yeah. it is. Right. And I mean, we have to believe that to do the work. Debbie has to believe that to keep telling the story. Yeah. I have to believe that to keep, you know, educating on this issue um, that a better response ca- is possible and can happen, mm-hmm. but it doesn't happen unless folks are really taking the time to learn about stalking, recognizing the sense of urgency and thinking through, you know, what do these victims and survivors need? Because like in Peggy's case, correct me if I'm wrong, Debbie, but I don't think she was ever connected with victim services. No, oh, no. Wow. I never heard the word advocate until, I mean, way after she was gone. So ne- never when she contacted the cops, did they uh, point yeah. her in another direction where she might be able to get help? Absolutely not. That's wild. Now, the, for Dana, will you outline for us, like, in a case, if there was a, a perfect law enforcement advocacy response to stalking, you know, say someone in a similar situation to Debbie comes in and says, listen, there's these flyers about me. I got hundreds of phone calls. I've been, my family's been threatened and my boyfriend's house has been burned down. Ideally, what would we see happen in a case like that where law enforcement is responsive and, you know, maybe the courts have the courts prioritize these cases as far as getting trial dates on the, on the books, things like that. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm sure I'll forget some parts of this. It's such a complicated system, and there's so many different wheels that would need to turn. But Mm -hmm. I think the first thing would be obviously a trauma-informed and victim-centered response from law enforcement, right? Mm -hmm. That validate, yes, this is scary. Like I said earlier, you know, you're right to come in, etc. Then documents it and takes the evidence. They would so they'd build that rapport. They take it seriously. They would save the evidence that second. So they'd say okay, if it's text messages, let's take a screenshot, here's how, right? They wouldn't say, oh, we'll get that later. They'd get mm. it right away. They'd mm-hmm. have resources on hand. So they'd say, you know, ha- you know, I think you're experiencing stalking. They'd be able to name that and they'd give that person information about what stalking is and what it might look like. They would do a risk assessment. So there is a risk assessment specifically for stalking. And actually I'll mention it because it's free. Anyone can do it. Victims can also do it themselves or someone can do it on behalf of, um, of friends and family. It's called SHARP, the Stalking and Harassment Assessment and Risk Profile. Um, and it's that we have, we didn't develop it. It's by this wonderful researcher, TK Logan, but you can get to it through our website at stalkingawareness.org. And it basically just asks a bunch of questions about what's happened. So, I mean, they would do an investigation that's not limited to that assessment, but could include that assessment that really gets a sense of the full scope of conduct. Um, 
And so that assessment's great because it creates a narrative that says, hey, here's what's going on. And it also looks at 14 risk factors and says, okay, based on what you shared, you have, you know, 5, 10, 12, 14 out of 14. Mm-hmm. And also encourages the victim to document, which we always want to encourage, and to seek out victim services. So in kind of your perfect response, you'd have empathetic, awesome, victim-centered um, law enforcement who does that, takes the time or quickly connects them to someone who can take the time to go through that assessment, to interview the victim, to get that full course of conduct, but you'd immediately connect them with an advocate, Mm -hmm. right? And so, because victims, some victims want to move forward in the criminal justice system, some don't. And so, you know, can we talk to someone confidential who we can weigh our options with? Right, to have a lifeline, a confidant Mm -hmm. that you know is on your side could mean everything. Totally. Yeah. And also there's so many resources that can be available that people don't get access to like that, like crime victims compensation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we were just hearing this this week, Debbie, that one of the one of yeah. the survivors was saying, Ooh, that sure would have helped me when I had to relocate because of mm-hmm. my stalker, but they didn't know that was an option. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so again, to connect with those victim services, does this person need to go into shelter? Let's make a safety plan, which mm-hmm. is, you know, that that's that one-on-one really specific guidance that you make with the victim advocate. And so it would be, moving the criminal justice process along, let's get the information, let's do a thorough investigation, let's, you know, look at what charges will be strategic here, and let's connect this person with victim services, let's safety plan with them, let's enhance their safety and have them think through, like, ways that they can be safer. Um, so, I mean, you'd want to see those happening simultaneously. And then I think the challenge is that at every level, you know, and what we see is folks blame each other, right? Mm. And so usually in these stalking cases, when something goes wrong and there's violence and or a homicide, um, it's usually not one person's fault. Mm. It's usually not mm. like, oh, if that guy had called it in, mm. we would have been set here. It's a systemic you know? failure. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's usually it's a systemic failure. So we have, you know, when I talk to law enforcement, they say, well, the, our prosecutors won't, they don't like stalking charges. So what's the point? And then our DA say, well, law enforcement didn't bring me anything. And then, you know, and the judge doesn't like it, they don't get it. And the judges say, well, this never even made it to me. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you have this kind of and everyone's kind of right, you know, it's yeah. not that there, there aren't these issues, but they're but, all passing but, the buck because they don't want to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, be, or they feel it won't be fruitful. Right. Um, So both it's that don't want to deal with it. And also just feeling that it won't be effective because of the context they're in. And I mean, look, we talk about like charge strategically, if you think it's more strategic to charge something else, whatever, what matters is victim safety and offender accountability. And like I keep saying, to me, it comes down to a sense of urgency. So I think Mm -hmm. if people and like, yes, we can look at statutes, we can look at policies and like, there's, you know, there's room for improvement there. But a lot of it is about how are these tools being utilized? Mm -hmm. And are we feeling that sense of urgency and saying, you know, not everyone gets stalking and it really understands how urgent this is, but I do. And I'm going to really go to bat on behalf of this victim and advocate for the survivor and connect them in our complicated system to the different points that can be helpful. Um, Because if that individual doesn't choose to do that or Mm -hmm. doesn't know they should be doing that, no one does. And it gets mm-hmm. missed. And our system is not set up for stalking cases. Mm-mm. It's set up to be incident based. You know, our officers respond to an incident. It's not set up for this highly often contextual, multi-jurisdictional often, sometimes mm-hmm. years long pattern mm-hmm. of behavior, mm-hmm. including individual criminal acts and individual not criminal acts that overall adds up to a pattern of behavior that is stalking. Um, 
And so there's, there's a lot of barriers, but they can be overcome. And in some cases have been by those people who really get it and care and feel that urgency. Um, How do we get everyone to feel that urgency and care and how is it funding and training is that kind of what it comes down to for law totally enforcement yeah i mean what do you think i i can't advocate for anything i mean we 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 did talk about this his last two days was training 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 mm-hmm. training and education so you know i do a lot of work on college campuses we have a whole slew of victims out there that aren't calling it stalking. Mm. So if you're not identifying what's happening to you, you're not going to report it. So there's, there's like the whole, like when they say, how about how many cases like out there, but there's, there's a lot that they're just, they're lost, Mm -hmm. you know? So yeah, we do need education out in the public. We also fight the battle of what media says stalking is. You know, the Netflix show you didn't really do it us any favors. No, I was, that is romantic is and gone, sexy yeah. and um Celeste, we do yeah. discussion yeah. guides on all that. four seasons on the oh, web. Oh, you do really? We do. So if <laughs> you, you ever I always yes. joke if you if you want to watch it and then not have fun, you can do our <laughs> I've just read guide. it recently. I think this is the last season, so we're gonna be rid it's of it for after the best. this. But it is shows like that that kind of glamorize and romanticize these uh, crimes to where then it does to the public seem minimized. And, you know, they have- Look at Valentine's Day. Yeah. Look at Valentine's Day. Yeah. Yeah. Send them something. Well, I think it's so also romantic. There's no, there's no counter message, right? So if you mm-hmm. watch an episode of TV and there is maybe suicide or sexual violence, often something comes up at the end that's like, hey, if you're experiencing this, here's who to call. We don't have that for stalking. So we mm, just yeah. have the misinformation and no counterbalance of go to this website. Yeah. Information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you think about the education on, say, sexual violence or to a lesser extent, intimate partner violence on campuses, right? Like folks get something in their orientation. You know, we hear more about consent, bystander intervention. Stalking needs to be in there as well. Cause like Debbie said, it's, you know, we want to en- enhance the response to stalking. But most victims don't enter the response to stalking because they don't identify what's going on as stalking mm-hmm. and they don't trust the response um, if they do. So, well, yeah, and if, really they've both been, of those. if they've been shown that law enforcement isn't going to do anything, I'm sure you feel like, well, what's the point? My hands are tied and mm-hmm. I risk pissing off my stalker even more to where I'm going to put myself in even more danger and I don't have anybody protecting me. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I can tell you, like, I've seen, I've seen converts, right, in our training um, that we do at Spark. I've seen people walk in the room with their arms folded, and they don't know I'm the trainer yet. And I'm like eavesdropping in the back, but not in a criminal way. And they're (laughs) saying things like, I can't believe this is a whole day on stalking. Like, that's ridiculous. Mm. What are they going to talk about? You know, this is ridiculous. Mm. Um, And by the end, they're asking questions, and they're engaging. And they're, oh, where's that on your website? Right? Because actually it is a practical training that is helpful and real um that you know this isn't mm-hmm. touchy-feely stuff this is homicide no. prevention right i think it's I a think- show of a precursor to what could be i mean we talk a lot about like um serial killers and you know instances that occur in their childhood or teenage years that looking then it's like okay well yeah they're escalating now they're harming animals and now they're so and there's no uh, intervention it seems like yeah. it's the perfect place to intervene to stop more something that is even more violent 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. And we often quote, there's this researcher we work with, Patrick Brady, who said stalking is homicide in slow motion. Oh, wow. Um, And I think that's so telling because it is. It's these behaviors and and, uh, tactics adding up and escalating over time. And when you look at a case like Peggy's, it is infuriating because Mm -hmm. sometimes this happens quickly and you're like, ooh, you know, I see how this moves so fast. But when you see this slow motion escalation and so many possible points for intervention that are not taken, Mm -hmm. and this is one of the few victimizations and crimes where early identification and intervention can help prevent further trauma, violence, and possibly even homicide. Like we have that opportunity, but only if we name it as stalking, take it seriously, recognize the risks, and really have that sense of urgency with our victims and survivors. Um, and that can happen, but it doesn't always. So, I mean, I definitely, I, I'm biased because I'm the training specialist. So obviously I'm like, training's the best. But um, I really do think both for our responders as well as for our general public, like Debbie said, are they thinking this is really serious? When we're talking about, say, the Me Too movement or sexual violence more broadly, is stalking brought into that conversation? Because it's mm-hmm. often not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's four major crimes under the Violence Against Women Act. It's domestic violence, sexual assault, dating violence, and stalking. Mm-hmm. But it's always kind of and stalking. Mm-hmm. like Tagged at the end, yeah. Yeah, and so on. it's how do we center that and move that more to the beginning of this, or at least more in my opinion, move it to the beginning of the sentence, right? <laughs> so we're really seeing the work through that lens. Um, Almost and I think in that the order that it would progress. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't start with murder. It starts right. with stalking. Sinisterhood will be right back. How can our listeners best support the stalking awareness cause? Well, I think... There's a few ways. One is to recognize your power as just that informal friend or support person. Um, Because I can tell you just in my personal life, now that I work on stalking all the time, people are coming out of the woodwork asking, oh, I'm worried about my friend. Ooh, that happened to me. That happened to my Mm -hmm. brother. That happened Mm -hmm. to my sister. I mean, it's just, I'm sure that happens to you too, Debbie. Um, Yeah. Where just, and I mean, our statistics show that around one in three women and one in six men experience stalking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the prevalence is right up there with intimate partner and sexual violence. And so I think being someone who is safe to talk to, that's something we can all work on, right? Being that person who cares and who listens, um, who doesn't make jokes about stalking, who doesn't you casually use the word stalking when that's not what we're talking about, mm-hmm. who's critical of media, uh, which doesn't mean you can't enjoy something with a problematic message, that's fine. But to recognize there's a cumulative effect and that maybe we don't know as much about this as we think we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I mean, to get involved in Stalking Awareness Month, right? So, of course, we, we say it's always Stalking Awareness Month to us, but <laughs> right, um, yeah, don't let that end the year-round thing for y'all. Yeah, yeah. Right. and it so, should be yeah, for everybody, for all of us. As yeah. is all, all crime prevention should be year-round. That's right. So, you know, you don't have to wait till January, but right. since it is January, um, you know, we have a ton of resources. Like we have social media posts, we have letters to the editor. You can work to have a proclaimed a stalking awareness month um, where you live. We have just fact sheets, infographics, and integrating stalking information and education into the places where you have influence. So if there's a lunch and learn at work, 
why not do a program on stalking? We have mm-hmm. scripted ones on our program with videos or show the video, you know, about Peggy's case and talk about it. Um, if you're working on a co-occurring issue or with a population, like say you're the LGBTQ plus center. Okay. Well, why don't we have an infographic, which you can again, get on our website, right. On um, stalking the LGBTQ community. You know, mm-hmm. how do we not only talk about stalking specifically, but also how integrate it into, cause it touches all these different issues. Um, and populations, right? So let's include that in the conversation. And I think just taking it much more seriously, big picture. So whether it's, you know, doing that post on social media, that might feel silly or like great awareness, does this change anything? But I'd say for stalking, it actually really does because Mm -hmm. people are not being educated on what stalking is. Yeah, the more it's out there, the more, you know, everybody's hearing it. I would love to also see programs like you mentioned in middle schools and high Mm -hmm. schools, you know, where young girls and men, that stuff really isn't talked about. They, Mm -hmm. and it is just like, Oh, he's just, you know, whatever. He's just kind of a crazy guy. And it's like, Mm -hmm. no, even though he's 15, he's still committing very harmful crimes. And when we see that it's a whole conversation around defining what a healthy relationship Mm -hmm. is. Yes. Mm -hmm. I've talked to high schoolers and like, no, you want him texting you 25 times and you know, while you're sleeping and Mm -hmm. you want him stalking you and that's cool. And that shows you, he loves you. And so, yeah, we need to talk to younger audiences Mm -hmm. about what healthy relationships do look Mm -hmm. like. And especially the more that, that we get sucked into our phones where before you may be able to move. Now, the more time you spend online that, that gives sometimes your stalker so much, more access to you, I bet. Mm-hmm. Right. That, yeah. That and digital norms are changing, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, privacy and norms around that change. And, but what doesn't change is that stalkers will continue to violate someone's boundaries, right? Yeah. And so their boundaries right. might look different than someone in an older generation. Yeah. But that stalker is still going to violate yeah. them. It's right? just kind and of so evolved think- into a new way of, of stalking, yeah. but it's recognized. It's, it's been there forever and it's, and sadly, yeah, doesn't seem to be going the technology away. changes, yeah. but the you know stalking behavior really yeah. does it. They're tools, and so mm-hmm. being up to date and not too intimidated by the technology to address that, but also to really get into what this what this really looks like. Because if if you think about like the cultural shift we've had around sexual violence in the past, like. 10 or 15 years, Mm -hmm. not that that's solved now, like, obviously, there's plenty more to go. But I do think that our dialogue about that is a lot further along. And definitely been made. And it's more, it's um, becoming more normalized to call those things out. Yeah, and not accept it positive social pressure when someone is mm-hmm. acting that way of like, yo, bro, you can't talk to a girl like that. You know, mm-hmm. ha- there is power in that, that yeah, it may sure not, is. if the victim says stop, he's not going to stop. But if all of his dudes are like, bro, you're acting crazy. You got to stop that. Mm-hmm. There, there is some power in that just because especially younger victims, but I think even on to, you know, full grown adults we're we're kind of uh, evolutionarily want to go with the flow, you know, go with the group and not be uh, ostracized. And if their behavior is like, that is not acceptable. And we don't joke around and use the word stock and, oh, yeah, you must really like her. I think there's there's definitely power in that. We have obviously our series on Fridays called Freaky Friday, where listeners write in with their tales. And I can't tell you the amount of stalking um, submissions we get. And I mean, it ranges from like 15 year old girls, you know, up until in their 40s and in 50s. But all of these stories are basically the same. I mean, a little, you know, differences here and there, but 
mm-hmm. all of the, it's kind of a format, like an outline that it, that it follows. And something you had said, Heather, made me think that getting the message out, like at a younger age to. Oh, was, were you remembering our, uh, when Killer Queens were on Freaky Friday and she, one of the hosts of Killer Queens had, had shared with us her experience kind of mm-hmm. with a. Like you said, though, Dana, earlier, I think I was a victim of this uh, bifurcation in my head of like, oh, well, if you're still together, it's not stalking, it's abuse. And if you're apart, it is. But her story and others that we've shared where the stalking behavior starts already while they're in that relationship. Mm-hmm. And, and she oftentimes was in high school, young too. Yeah, super yeah. young. Yeah. Yeah, super young. Well, Debbie, before we go, you know, what is, aside from this beautiful legacy you've given Peggy for being this, not just a voice for this group of people, but it sounds like literally saving lives. You know, what do you mm-hmm. want our listeners and people to think of when they think of sis- dear sister, when they think of Peggy Clinky? What, what should I, I mean, right now, I think, like you said, that sparkle, that smile, but yeah, yeah. tenacity, mm-hmm. small yeah. but mighty. I mean, she was, she was strong. She was, she was, st- I mean, she was beautiful. Like I said, she was like that blonde haired, blue eyed, all American. But here's a funny story about, Peggy. So if your listeners want to do something Peggy. Yes, for sure. Um, so she was like the queen of junk. Um, so one of her, one of her cool tactics was to go to McDonald's and order French fries with no salt. Okay. Because then they would be hot. So, so they have to make them right away and they can be sitting there. So you order your French fries, no salt. And then you go to the drive-thru window and you pick up your french fries and you ask for some salt packets. <laughs> Smart. And then you open up the salt packets, you dump them in there, you like shake up your fries. And then, so yeah, if your listeners want to do something Peggy-ish uh-huh. after they hear this podcast, go get yourself some hot fries. I, that's a life hack that <laughs> I will use today. I'm not yes. even joking. I will go to McDonald's today and use that. <laughs> so we love uh She was ahead of, ahead of her time. I love it. I <laughs> love it. And I love that those are the memories that you also share. It's not because when we share stories about victims on our show, we always like to start with their background and that, and not just like the worst thing that ever happened to them doesn't define right. them. They had a life and were a person long before that came along. And we love that you're still honoring that and her sparkle, like with this, you know, yesterday on National Stalking Awareness Day, the sending out the pictures of Sparkle because she was such like a sparkle in the room, those types of things. I think it helps things get shared too, because it's not just the sad stuff, you know, it's like bringing awareness in a way that is almost more palatable in a way to some, or, you know, Mm -hmm. might reach more people. Mm -hmm. But I think, um, what both of you do is just so tremendous and we have the utmost admiration for you and all the work you do and anything we can do to help anytime and also spread to our listeners and links that we can share with them. We would absolutely love to. Thank you. Thank you both for being with us. Yes. Thank you so much. Is there anything you you wanted to end on Dana or Debbie, any last words that we hadn't touched on or resources to share or places people can find more? I think just in terms of if you're a victim or survivor or you know a victim or survivor, um, you know, the, your best bet to get that local help from victim service providers, they're generally housed under domestic violence or sexual assault service agencies, even if that's not, even if it's a stranger or an acquaintance stalker. And so 
your best bet is to really reach out to your local domestic violence shelter, rape crisis agency. If you're not sure where to start, um, the closest thing we have to a stalking hotline is the Victim Connect hotline, which is run out of the National Center for Victims of Crime. They're at 855-4-VICTIM. Um, and if you Google Victim Connect, you'll see them come up. It's not 24-7, but they're going to refer you to local sexual assault, dating violence, intimate partner violence organization. Um, our website at stalkingawareness.org has a lot of just information. So information on helping a friend, on um, we have infographics, fact sheets, but our primary job at Spark is to kind of help the helpers. And mm -hmm. so most of our resources are mm -hmm. aimed in that direction. But we do also have programs that folks can pick up and lead on campuses as a lunch and learn, et cetera. And to even just have that, we have like posters and brochures and things you can order free of charge. Just anything to kind of get stalking top of the mind year round uh, goes a long way. And we, because we know that victims and survivors do come to our website and look for yeah. information, mm -hmm. you know? And yeah. so we have the information. We just can't do that direct service. So please don't Certainly. contact us because we'll just have to be nice <laughs> and send you back to Victim Connect. And it's a bummer for everybody. Um, but I would just say for the, you know, stalking survivors and victims out there, there is good work happening in the space and more needs to be done. And all of us can be part of the solution. And I mean that very sincerely, whether it's thinking about your casual use of the word stalking, whether it's starting a conversation about a piece of media that you're watching, or if it's, you know, taking that photo next year for our second annual uh, stalking day of action, <laughs> now that we've had the first one. Um, all of that goes a long way, you know, and it yeah. matters because stalking survivors often feel so not seen by the wider world. And like Debbie said, these stalkers try to isolate mm -hmm. their victims from their friends mm -hmm. and family. And they often feel so alone because they feel so guilty for involving anyone else, mm -hmm. you know, in that sense of anticipatory fear. And if I tell someone, well, now they be become a secondary victim, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so it's so lonely. So to be able to see other people say, actually, this is unacceptable. And I know mm -hmm. about this and I care about this. It matters. Yeah. Um, and to advocate locally for, you know, figure out what are the services locally for your stalking victims and survivors and are they what you want them to be? And if the response mm -hmm. isn't what you'd like to see, that is our job at Spark to train the, to train the responders. And so, mm -hmm. you know, we can't make them go to our training, but <laughs> if they invite us in, mm -hmm. we'll be there. Well, um, the co constituents, I mean, I think if you look, like you mm -hmm. said, we all have a part to play. And if our listeners who are not at all related to law enforcement or victims advocacy, you know, they're average Joes and Janes like us, and you go, hey, I've noticed that my my neighborhood, my community, my county doesn't have any of these things, send an email. You can send an email to your district attorney's office, send an email to your police department and say, hey, I noticed there's no resources for stalking. It's National Stalking Awareness Month. These folks at Spark would love to train you. Give them a call. There's nothing, yeah. I mean, your voters, your taxpayers, they mm -hmm. work for y'all. So uh, yeah. <laughs> call Absolutely. them up. Call them up and, uh, and yeah. light a fire. And just to keep talking about it. So yeah, and no, I really appreciate you having Debbie, and also letting me come in and be like, well, actually, here's no, some it's facts. Great. Oh, um, no, you've been wonderful. You. <laughs> I've learned so much, too. So much. I'm, but yeah, I'm no, we really Yeah, no, we really appreciate it because, again, this issue is often not talked about on its own. It's mm -hmm. added on yeah. to other things. And yeah, so yeah, to really yes. take the time and realize, no, let's focus on stalking today. Um, so thank you mm -hmm. for that. And of course, thank you to Debbie as always. I always learn something new though. I, you know, I've heard Pagli's story told different ways by you and the <laughs> videos and all this many times over the years, but there's always something new I learn. Um, and it's always so moving and powerful. So I yeah, know that it's, so, it's a burden to bear and it's no easy task to keep really. repeating this and repeating this, but people are listening and oh, yes. it does make a huge difference. Um, so I'm so glad it's being featured on this podcast and elsewhere. 
Yeah. Thank you. I, I appreciate your time. I really do. And, and amplifying Peggy's story and, and sharing it with your audience. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're honored to, and anything that we can do, um, you know, the conversation with us and y'all doesn't end here. And mm-hmm. after the episode airs, we'd love to keep in touch and anything else we can do to help with all the education and change that needs to be made. Please, please let us know. But thank you We'd so much help. for speaking with us today. I know that so many listeners, this is going to resonate with them and mm-hmm. reach a lot of people that need to hear it. And so I'm hopeful that this is going to to help more than just a handful of people that hear this. And Most definitely. hopefully that they are able to reach out and get the get some assistance that they need. Thank you so much for and everybody listening. Thanks for listening. You all have mm-hmm. a part to play. We all mm-hmm. have a role in knowing it, naming it, and stopping it when it comes to stalking. So thank you both for being with us today. And for uh, more information, check the show notes. We'll have some links in there for some resources for you all. Well, thank you so much again to Debbie and Dana for being with us today. If you or someone you know is being stalked, help is available. For resources and information on your rights, contact the Victim Connect Resource Center at victimconnect.org or 1-855-4-VICTIM. If you're interested in learning more about stalking awareness or would like training or materials on stalking prevention, visit Spark's website at stalkingawareness.org.